0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So this is episode two in my series that I'm just launching called 1940. If you heard my series from back in 2020 called "Spiritual Lessons from World War II," you're going to find some similarities in this particular mini-series. This is going to be a seven-parter, and I, you know, just to be honest with you, I enjoyed giving that series on World War II so much that it was like a dying process to actually come to the end of it and, and say goodbye. And so I've come up with some excuses, this this series being one of them, to just sort of revisit it and to go back into one particular aspect of World War II, which was Great Britain in the very beginning uh, of the war. What led up to their uh, near demise at the hands of Hitler and what happened to change them, because that's the part of World War II that actually in my original studies was the most intriguing to me. I was so fascinated by the fact that this nation, which we would look at as, oh, they were perfectly fit and ready. Because in in with historical lenses on, you look back at Great Britain and it's like, hey, they stopped Hitler. Yay, way to go. Remember, Winston Churchill stepped in and this mighty lion of a man, and these great things happened. But we don't realize how dark it came when it came to before that, that there was a 1939 before there was a 1940. And in 1940, something shifted. It was a revival of a nation, practically, militarily, spiritually as well. And as a result, because I have a tendency to look at war as a help or an aid, a grand metaphor to help understand my own spiritual life, my, the spiritual battles I'm engaged in, it actually becomes a very, very pithy and powerful picture for me personally to see what I desire in my life and in the church today and in the world today to see the shift we have wandered from the truth we're like a 1939 great britain where hitler is marching even though he's not called hitler it's the it's the spiritual powers are marching about this earth and taking territory without resistance and the good men of this earth are doing nothing in fact many of us would say, I don't even know what to do. But we're watching something begin to fall to pieces. And there's, if we were to all get in the same room and chat together, we would say, I want to see something change. I want to see something revived. And then I could ask you a direct question. I know you want you know, this world, this government to shift, but would you be willing to allow that shift, that change to start inside of you? Now, you, as a thinking person, might ask back, what do you mean by that? (laughs) That's a good question, because this is the encounter all of us have with the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, what do you exactly mean by that? You say that you offer salvation, but what, what is that in exchange for? You see, the gospel comes to us free. It does. It's the work of Christ on our behalf. It's his work, not ours. We can't purchase it. And yet to receive it, It costs us everything. You see, imagine that you were a glass and you're filled with polluted water. God didn't design you to be a carrier of pollution. And so he comes along and he says, look, I've purchased for you some living water. It is life water. And if you drink it, you will live forever. And when you pour it out on others, they will be changed. And we're like, oh, bring it on. He says, but I can't mix it with that pollution. I need you to dump out that previous water. You see, it's not that we are purchasing the living water. It's that we're relinquishing that which is replaced it the counterfeit so that we can receive the true. So would you be willing to allow the spirit of God to start with you? And then you say back, well, what do you mean by that? Well, what Jesus says is anyone who is desiring to follow after me must deny himself, must pick up his cross and follow me. You see, all of us need to come to that place. where We recognize this means a change of life. There are certain things that we have a tendency to cling to that we need to let go of afresh. And this is the great lesson that I get and I glean out of World War II. Great Britain wants to keep things status quo. They just want it to stay as it's always been. And yet they have a nemesis. They have an enemy that is rising up in power on the other side of the English Channel, known as Hitler, the Nazis. And they're not stopping. They're about to cross that channel and take Great Britain. And finally, Great Britain says, yes, we need to stop this. It's, it's a great story. I started the story last week on Monday, and so we're sort of going to continue it. We're going to go back a little further in time and maybe sort of create the context for last week's message. But the series, I really like the title, 1940, When Change is Desperately Needed. So this is part two. I called it the anatomy of folly. So if you want to understand how folly works, uh, which is the essence of stupidity, uh, then just follow along with me in this message. Germany in World War I. So World War I is going to take place between 1914 and 1918. And it's interesting because many of us look back at World War I. And first of all, a lot of us have no clue about World War I. We don't know a thing about World War I. We know that maybe Franz Ferdinand was shot and that somehow started it, even though we don't know have a clue how that started World War One. But many people today, because I did a series on World War I last year, and I, I found this out up close, that very few people know a thing about World War I. And so if that includes you, don't feel bad. You're sort of uh, with uh, almost everyone else in that. But many people look at Germany in World War I with the same lens we look at Germany in World War II. They must have been a bad guy, right? Now, not as bad is, is what I would say. Kaiser Wilhelm II, who was the uh, the sort of the king of Germany at that time, wasn't the healthiest character. And he, he was a rather self-centered man. And uh, he, he felt like th- that Germany was being surrounded. And he made some bad decisions. And so the culpability for World War I is actually going to fall upon the Germans. So in history, I can sort of see how we tie the two together. However, because of Germany in World War I and their mistakes, they're going to receive a, dr- a great penalty upon their their nation. It's called the Versailles Treaty or the Treaty of Versailles. And this is going to limit their military. This is going to tax them in a great way, basically shut down uh, the country of Germany. It was the goal of the Treaty of Versailles, lest they become a military machine ever again. And that is ultimately, strangely enough, going to lead to World War II. Germany didn't like that. And so Hitler is going to rise out of the ashes of a defeated Germany in World War I. And that's actually the entire motivation. That's what causes the nation of Germany to rally to his side because he is speaking a language that Germany recognizes and understands. They're an oppressed people over these past 20 years since World War One, And this needs to change. And this is going to create a momentum for Hitler. But it's, I have a map, and what you're going to see is Germany in World War I. It sort of looks, I've always said, like a horse's head, with its sort of name in the direction of Russia. And it's interesting just to see how dramatic the nation of Germany in shape has changed over this past century. Uh, and Germany in World War II, which is the years 1939 through 1945, looks, territorially speaking, very different. And that's as a result of World War I. They actually lost territory. They were reshaped. And look at what they looked like uh, as World War One is beginning. And every time I look at that picture, and you know, I said the, the previous one looks like a horse's head. Now, if you're getting this via audio, you're missing my great pictures here. But here's what I liken it to. They look like a monster. I mean, you have to admit, uh, that's a pretty evil looking nation. And ironically, it was a rather evil functioning nation. Hitler wasn't a friendly character. And so during this stretch of time, that is actually what Germany looked like. And so I put a, by the way, if you're if you're getting this via audio, I, I have a picture with the head, it looks like a monster's head with this monster body on it. Pretty cool picture. Worth seeing the video just to see that. Now, if you look at, I have three options for you, 1914, 1939, and then 2023. And I put eyeballs on each one of them 1914 up until World War Two uh, actually looks like a horse's head, sort of scared, and then of course 1939 to 1945 looks like the evil monster, and then 2000 like what it looks like today. If you stick an eyeball on it, looks like a helpless lady, old lady, and it just is interesting to see that. I don't know if it plays into the the message at all, but it's it's just intriguing to me to see how this nation has morphed. It's been a very key player in the formation of world events in the past 100 years. Pretty remarkable, actually. So here's Winston Churchill, and he's speaking about this German empire that was was being ruled by Hitler in this time. Crimes were committed by the Germans under the Hitlerite domination, which find no equal in scale and wickedness with any that have darkened the human record. The wholesale massacre by systematized processes of six or seven millions of men, women, and children in the German execution camps exceeds in horror the rough-and-ready butcheries of, of Genghis Khan and in scale reduces them to pygmy proportions. Deliberate extermination of whole populations was contemplated and pursued. So when you see something like that or hear about something like that, you know many people have even denied some of these holocausts that Hitler participated in, They're very real. And if that was taking place in your generation, what would you do? Now, many of us think very high thoughts of our potential and what we would do. Like when we see Noah and his ark, we're like, well, of course I would get on it. And when we hear about these concentration camps and the Jews being thrust into them, we're thinking, well, I would stand up and I would speak. If you've ever heard about that one church... uh, this is, I don't know how much is legend, how much is truth, you know, these types of things, but it's a, it's a very poignant story of a, of a cattle car that is packed full of Jews that were being uh, hauled off to concentration camps, headed through whether it was Holland or Germany, I don't remember which, but they were headed early morning hours by a church that was singing their worship. And they had the organ playing. And as this, uh, Cattle car as these cattle cars full of Jews pass, they were looking out through the slats and they see these Christians in their church buildings singing to their God. And they think, you know, maybe we 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 function in a different religion according to a different religion, but If there was anyone on earth that would do something and see our plight as something worthy of responding to, it would be the Christians, right? And so they start screaming at the top of their lungs for this this Christian church to awaken, to do something, to act on their behalf, to somehow save them. And what this church did, instead of responding in a way that would save, they turn up the volume of the pipe organ and drown out the sound of the screams. When I hear that story, I don't want to just cluck my tongue at the Christians in that time period in Germany and in Holland and the various other countries that were impacted by this. I want to pause and say, Lord, is there anything in my life where I am deliberately trying to tune it out, where I'm turning up the pipe organ volume because I don't want to deal with it? I would rather choose the status quo and my human comforts then risk those comforts to actually intervene. So I have a, a picture of Edmund Burke on the screen, and Edmund Burke is famous for this one line. I'm not saying he didn't; he's not famous for other lines, but this one line is, is just a significant one. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. You see, when we fall for the pipe organ volume you know, turn up, uh, routine. We are actually just like, um, so many other believers throughout history that though they know the truth, they are not implementing the truth. And though they know the mercy of God towards them, and though they know the redemptive power of God towards them, and though they know the saving work of God towards them personally, they are not willing to lift a finger to exert the same love, the same kindness, the same mercy the same working of heroism towards others. And I don't think it's bad for us to be freshly convicted on this front. When Jesus separates sheep from goats and he says to the goats at the end that didn't feed him, that didn't clothe him when he came to them in that point of need. And he says, I never knew you. Depart from me. Those are things that should strike us at the very depths of our being saying, Lord, Lord, am I alert to you in the world around me? Are you screaming at me through the slat in a cattle car? Because I don't want to be asleep at this exact juncture. I don't want to be the good man that does nothing and allows evil to triumph in my generation. Here's another Winston Churchill quote. It is my purpose as one who lived and acted in these days, speaking of World War II, first to show how easily the tragedy of the Second World War could have been prevented, how the malice of the wicked was reinforced by the weakness of the virtuous. We shall see how the counsels of prudence and restraint may become the prime agents of mortal danger, how the middle course adopted from desires for safety and a quiet life may be found to lead direct to the bullseye of disaster." That is a powerful quote, and it is interesting because he is writing this memoir, and that's his purpose statement right there. I'll read it again, because this is a worthy quote for you to learn of someone who lived through World War I as a leader and lived through World War II as the prime minister of Great Britain. It is my purpose, says Winston Churchill, as one who lived and acted in these days, first to show how easily the tragedy of the Second World War could have been prevented how the malice of the wicked was reinforced by the weakness of the virtuous. We shall see how the counsels of prudence and restraint may become the prime agents of mortal danger, how the middle course adopted from desires for safety and a quiet life may be found to lead direct to the bullseye of disaster. There are so many moments in my life where I am presented with a middle course that would lead to safety and a quieter life if i just would take it as opposed to doing that one thing that would lead to discomfort that would lead to inconvenience that would lead to potential challenge and drama in my life we are humans <laughs> which means we have a propensity in our natural man's state which is marred by sin to always choose a middle course which would justify why we are avoiding doing the harder thing and I just want us to freshly revisit these thoughts today and just sort of ch- allow the Spirit of God to check our life. Because when Winston Churchill says, and it is profound, if you read his memoirs of World War II, it is profound how easily World War II could have been avoided. If Great Britain had just done certain things back in the early 30s, instead of being silent and sticking their head in the sand, everything would have changed in history. We wouldn't have lost, you know, millions and millions of lives in World War II. And how often we end up in the same situation where there are things we could intervene in, but because we don't, actually, we don't get the quiet life, the safe life. We actually end up with a greater challenge on our hands. Here's a Greek word for you, Gregorio. Sort of a fun word to say and I'm sure this is where the name Gregory or Greg comes from. It's, it's actually a really neat name if you were to name someone this. It, it is a, an action, a verb, and it is the idea of watching. So it means to watch, to give strict attention to one's position, to be cautious regarding your foe, to stay awake and alert lest through passivity and slumber. Calamity doesn't suddenly spring up and bring destruction. So when you have Gregorio, you are watchful of an enemy. And Great Britain lacked Gregorio in the 30s. And in 1939, we see the full manifestation of what that led to. It led to disaster. And Hitler now has greater strength than Great Britain. It shouldn't, but it does. And as a result, Great Britain finds themselves in a desperate situation as they head into the year 1940. So in the New Testament, we see this word Gregorio used quite a bit. Uh, here Jesus is using it in Matthew 26, 41. He says, watch and pray. That's that word Gregorio. So watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The Carlsbad ants. Now I've shared about the Carlsbad ants. I, I probably even have on a Daily Thunder somewhere along the line. It's funny because just to my family, that's an entire symbol of... Of something, but we were on a, a vacation to Southern California a few years ago, and I have never had this problem in, in California. But there was something about this house, and I'm not sure what it was. It was an Airbnb type of setup where they had an ant infestation, and I didn't see them when we first came in. But we set all of our uh, our food in the pantry, and I still remember pulling out the cutting board where you know someone had cut some bread on the cutting board, and it still had left some crumbs there. And it wasn't just crumbs on the cutting board. It was a whole bunch of ants. And I started tracking these ants around. They were all over the place. And anywhere we had a little food uh, that was left, even a little blob on the counter, there were ants. And then we opened the pantry and this whole line of ants came in. Our cereal was infested with ants. Everything that wasn't airtight and closed was covered with ants. It was rather disgusting, if I could be blunt, honest with you. And one of the thoughts I had, you know, in sort of extrapolating that, because it doesn't, if you're going to have ants, you might as well get a spiritual truth out of it, right? And, you know, rejoice in it. We ended up putting all our stuff in Tupperware and sealing it shut and trying to treat the ants so that they wouldn't uh, enjoy our food instead of us enjoying it. But is that when you leave a gap and when you turn your back and say, oh, it's just a few ants, it's like they multiply. They seem to, you know, tell their cousin and their uncle and whoever else, you know, that there's a food supply here. And boy, did we run into that. And that's sort of what the Nazis are doing in the 30s. They come in and they take a, a, a crumb off the uh, the cutting board, and then they go back and they realize they, they just made it through that unmolested. And so they, you know, they bring their buddy with them the next time and they say, hey, you know, check out the pantry. Let's see what's in there. And then they keep going back and say, yeah, no one's stopping us. They have so many open things in there. They have no idea we're doing this. And so they don't seem to be lifting even a finger to try and stop us. And so by the time I realize that there's a problem, it's a big problem. And that is precisely what is taking place in 1939 Great Britain. 1 Corinthians 16.13. So here's Paul utilizing the same word Gregorio in his famous statement, watch, watch. Stand fast in the faith. Be brave, be strong. Now, for those of you that know this scripture, be brave is a terrible translation. It should be like be manful or quitchy like men. There's a lot of better translations of that one. Why I picked this one, I can't tell you. But uh, watch is part of that commission. We are to actually know where our enemy is. We're supposed to be aware. We're supposed to be monitoring the gates, walking the walls. This starts with our own thought life. This starts with our own soul. This starts with our marriage. This starts with our family. Then it extends to the church. It extends to this culture. But however, we need to watch. We cannot be passive with our enemy. First Peter 5.8. So Peter uses this word now. Be sober, be vigilant. So that word for vigilant is Gregorio. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. This could have easily said your adversary, the ants, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so you need to be watchful. You need to be vigilant, which is what means watchful. So here's a key truth. Key truth number one, which indicates there's probably going to be more than one of these. A great victory can be gained only to be lost. Isn't that a stunning statement if you were to ponder it? A great victory can be gained only to be lost. In other words, a lot of us have this notion that when you gain a victory, hey, it's just your victory now. You just have victory. However, if you don't maintain that victory, if you don't cultivate that victory, if you don't sponsor that victory in your life, it's like you could have muscle, but that doesn't mean you keep the muscle. Your muscle can atrophy from unuse, And so as a result, when you get this victory, it can be lost. And that's exactly what's going to happen for the Allies after World War I. They won the victory. It's an extraordinary story. World War I is a great story in and of itself. But it's pretty sad to see what happens after World War I. Key truth number two. Though defeated, an enemy left unwatched is an enemy that can regain strength. So an enemy can regain its strength when you turn a blind eye towards it, when you treat the enemy as, oh, you know, you don't matter anyways. A lot of Christians enter the kingdom of heaven with the notion that, well, I've believed, therefore the enemy has, you know, no ability to stop me. He has no ability to do anything, to interfere in my life moving forward. And that would be an ignorant understanding of how the Christian life works. You have been given authority over the enemy. You have a victory, but you need to now implement that victory. It's like having logs and, you know, uh, a match and some kindling, uh, you know, some starter material for a fire. That doesn't mean you have a fire. You have everything you need to win, to have the enemy underneath your boot. However, if you don't implement that authority, if you don't implement those instruments of victory, well, the enemy will take advantage of your ignorance. Key truth number three. When Gregorio—remember, that means watchfulness—is absent, the enemy will take back what he deems lost territory. The enemy doesn't like to lose anything. So when you take something from the enemy, he is going to monitor that something that he lost. And if he sees that you're careless with it, he's going to go back after it. So when you gain a victory in your life—say it's a moral victory, or say it's just a practical victory, say it's a relational victory— You have to still maintain that. It's like setting a garrison about it. A garrison is a a contingent of soldiers that you leave behind after you have won territory to maintain that territory. Some of us win territory and then just move on, and we leave it there. What we need to do is make sure we set the garrison in place to preserve that which we have gained. So here's a symbol of gaining something and then losing it again. And when you lose it, it's not a pretty sight. So this is Jesus speaking in Matthew 12, verses 43 through 45. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it be with this wicked generation." you know that that can be sort of an odd scripture for many of us not exactly knowing what to do with it but boy is it depicted with great britain great britain is going to deal with an enemy kaiser wilhelm was a tough cookie and it, it germany in world war 1 they were a great military machine and it cost a lot of lives millions of lives to to finally deal with the germans in world war 1 and yet Nazism and Hitler is going to be 10 times uh, the shoe size. And I mean, it is quite the menace that is awakened and is very similar to this story. In other words, they stopped being watchful. They actually felt sort of bad uh, for what they did in and through the Versailles Treaty to Germany. And so they went out of their way. We're not fighting a war again. We don't want to try and intervene in Germany's uh, politics. And so, hey, let them do what they do. However, they were allowing an evil to grow. This is a guy named Dr. J.H. Jowett, and uh, sort of a cool-looking guy. If you see the video, uh, I like his mustache, a great mustache. Uh, But listen to this quote of his. He's going to be talking about the very same thing I'm talking about in our spiritual lives. Evil never surrenders its hold without a sore fight. We never pass into any spiritual inheritance through the delightful exercises of a picnic, but always through the grim contentions of the battlefield. It is so in the secret realm of the soul. Every faculty which wins its spiritual freedom does so at the price of blood. Apollyon is not put to flight by a courteous request. He straddles across the full breadth of the way and our progress has to be registered in blood and tears. This we must remember, or we shall add to all the other burdens of life, the gall of misinterpretation. We are not born again, and he puts quotes around born again, into soft and protected nurseries, but in the open country where we suck strength from the very terror of the tempest, we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Oh, how the monster can grow. In our lives as individuals... We have a victory, the victory of the cross. And when you come to Christ, you actually have that victory. It's very real and it's very tangible. But now we must exercise that victory. We must utilize it. It's referred to as armor or weaponry, like a shield and a sword and armor in Scripture. It's the victory that Christ has procured for us, and we're supposed to wear it like that armor. To wear something, you can't just leave it, you know, hanging on the, the shelf or, you know, fold up in the drawer. You need to put it on. For a sword to be useful, you actually must swing it. And if you don't... That nemesis that you uh, had dealt with in that purchase of the cross is actually going to stand back up look around and say, huh, they don't understand how to use their weaponry. And he will begin to eat and take territory, whatever he can. So I'm saying, oh, how the monster can grow. This is a picture of World War II. So right now on the screen, I have a picture of Europe in 1939. And you're going to see, I'm going to illuminate the the black now in the middle of it. It's, a, it's all green if you're hearing this via uh, audio. And then now I have the black of Germany right in the middle of it. And that cancer... And what the Hitler regime is like a cancer is going to do is it's going to begin to absorb and eat up all of Europe. So you can see in that picture, almost everything in Europe is now under Hitler's control uh, as we move forward. you see Great Britain, that island nation off to the side, definitely has its work cut out for it. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he asks a question of, I don't know if this was the Allies, I don't remember what the context was, but this is, uh, because he died before the end of World War II, so this is somehow in the middle of it. And he says, gentlemen, what should we name this war? Many people have called it the Great War, you know, we we call it World War I. Uh, The War to End All Wars uh, was another name for it. Listen to uh, Churchill's immediate response. The Unnecessary War. How many of us... Have unnecessary wars in our life because we allow evil to continue to stand in our life, to hide in the shadows. And when the Spirit of God convicts us, we don't address it. And we end up with an unnecessary war. So, likewise, so many of our own battles fall under the same moniker. So, the victory was gained. We're going to call it the Treaty of Versailles, June 28, 1919. I have a little newspaper uh, front page that shows, you know, treaty signed, war over. The Treaty of Versailles, June 28th, 1919, the Germans had no say in this treaty. Their option was to either sign the treaty or allied troops would occupy their country. Not a good choice for them. The treaty was solely intended to make it impossible for Germany to start a new war. Germany had to reduce its armed forces from 6 million men to 100,000. It had to get rid of its submarines. It had to dispose of its military aircraft. It had to liquidate most of its artillery. Now, as I go through this list, just imagine that you're German. Okay, now, many Germans feel that it is unfair and unjust that they were blamed for the entirety of World War One. And, you know, I've studied World War One quite exhaustively, and I I would... Argue that I do believe the Germans are culpable, not fully culpable. There are some other characters involved, France for one, that probably should have carried a little more of the culpability. However, France was mad, and there's reasons for that. If you study the World War I series, you'll understand why France was mad. It's called French Fury. And so they're taking it out on Germany, but there's a whole generation that's growing up under this oppression of not having any ability to defend their nation and having massive taxation on them. It was a big deal to them. So this is continuation of that same list. It had to shrink down its naval forces to merely six small battleships. Germany also had to give back French territories it had taken and occupied during World War I. They also had to relinquish large territories of its own to Poland and other neighbors. And it had to give up all of its colonies to the League of Nations. So at this time of history, you see nations, France and Great Britain being the the picture of that more than any other, taking other colonies. Like, for instance, Great Britain has Canada. They have India. They have New Zealand. They have Australia. They have South Africa. And France had various places as well. And so Germany was wanting to be one of the big guys, right? So it started taking territories. They had to give all those back. In addition to all of this, Germany had to pay back the massive World War I reparations for the damage done to Allied countries by German troops. This sum was enormous. 132 billion gold marks was just the first payment due. So now they're going to be an impoverished nation because of the taxation that is going to be upon them by these other nations. And so you can understand why Hitler is going to be able to feed upon this in the German uh, country, just to be able to say, hey, how do you guys feel about that? Yeah, you upset about it? So am I. What are we going to do about it? So on paper, there is simply no possible way Germany can become the strongest military power in the world over the span of the next 20 years. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. How could they ever do that? They lost their military. They, they can't even uh, recruit more soldiers because they have a limit on that. They have to pay back these massive war reparations, which means they have no money to put into military strength. So on paper, it's, it's impossible. But alas, that is exactly what happened. Germany is going to turn into a military machine. And it's because good men did nothing. So the victory was gained. Now we're going to look at this spiritually, the cross triumph. And I'm going to say Passover day, 33 AD. We don't know exactly which year it was, but you know we know that Jesus was basically 33 years old, so we'll make it 33 AD. But to give you a general uh, range of time, and there's a little picture, just feel the, the momentum and the power and the majesty of that of Jesus giving up his life for us. So the triumph of the cross, the head of the serpent was crushed, the power of sin is destroyed, the ransom paid, the captive set free, the old man crucified, death defeated, the grave conquered. Woo! Go Jesus! In other words, all of this is going to happen. It's a victory. So on paper, there is simply no possible way the devil should have any say in your life or my life. Don't you agree with that? I mean, if Jesus really did accomplish that and we came and believed in Jesus, we're set free and the devil has no power over us anymore. Sin has no power over us anymore. That's good Bible teaching right there. So on paper, which is a good way of saying it because it's in the Bible, there is simply no possible way the devil should have any say in our life. But alas, he sure is a loud mouth, isn't he? What's happened? Why is it that we could have a victory but not walk in the fullness of that victory? That's a good question. And it's one that weighs very heavily upon my life. And it's one that I have investigated at a very deep level because I want to know if Christianity is real or not. If it's real, I want it. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get the real thing. If it's not, please, someone break it to me now. I don't want to give my life to some false thing. Here's what I know. The truth of Jesus Christ is very real. It is very true. And it works tremendously. However, to activate these realities, I have to exercise them. I have to remember them. I have to do them. There is a very real doing in Christianity. It is empowered by the Holy Spirit, just like the flight of an airplane is something that must be undergirded by something. It doesn't just happen. The same is true with your flight. You need to enter into Christ and allow him to fly for you, but you need to remain there. You need to stay constant. You need to keep buckled into that seat. You need to depend upon him to do the work, and you really will fly. You will. really will break the law of gravity in so doing. So I have a quote from Catherine Booth, which will just sort of say in great summary of everything I'm, I'm trying to pass along here. So William and Catherine Booth started the Salvation Army. And it was quite the amazing work. I think where they have like 300,000 people come into the kingdom of heaven in the first like three years. It's a remarkable uh, thing. And this is back in that time period where they're seeing a great work of grace on the, in the world. She says, I was thinking while I was reading these passages, she was reading through the book of Acts, what if we could erase from our minds all knowledge of the history of Christianity from the close of the period described in the book of Acts, and then looking at the book of Acts, sit down and try to calculate what was likely to happen in the world? we would most likely expect very different results. A radically changed world is the outcome of it all. A system which started with such power, under such promises and declarations on the part of its author, and producing, as it did in its first century, such gigantic and momentous results. We would have thought, if we knew nothing of what had intervened from then until now, that the whole world would have fallen long ago to the influence of that system and would have been brought under the authority of its great originator and founder. I say from reading these acts and from observing the spirit which moved the early disciples that we should have anticipated 10,000 times greater results. And in my opinion, this anticipation would have been perfectly rational and just. I agree. I agree, but I'm not going to blame God. I'm going to say that we, on our end, have a responsibility to respond have a responsibility to act in accordance with what has been revealed. And like Edmund Burke said, evil thrives when good men do nothing. But what if good men did something? Now that something that we as good men need to do isn't always, you know, some massive thing like we need to march on, on some place in this earth. We need to believe Jesus afresh. We need to put on our armor. We need to swing a sword. We need to be willing to stand when everyone else sits. We need to be willing to speak when everyone else is silent. It might not be huge with cameras on us where everyone notices it, but we need to start doing something. Because there is an evil that is looking to encroach upon the church of Jesus Christ and to quash the revelation of the gospel of Jesus in this hour. And yet this is the hour we have been assigned. We didn't live in World War II. We live now. And it is our job to live now for the glory of Jesus Christ. Why would good men do nothing? Think about why you sometimes do nothing. You know what God is asking of you, but you don't act or you don't speak. I think all of us can recognize why good men do nothing. Because we love our comforts more than we love the glory of God. Because we would rather have popularity in this world than popularity in heaven. You see, there's a very real, raw, natural side to our existence that argues against following Jesus the way he has asked us to follow him. However, this podcast is not dedicated to excuses. It's dedicated to removing excuses so that we could once again live as the church of Jesus Christ ought to live. Some good reasons for Great Britain not to do anything. They had some good reasons. Great Britain couldn't financially afford another war. The idea of war was abhorrent to them. The romance of it was totally gone. That was supposed to be the war to end all wars. We don't even want to discuss political conflict, the British people cried. We're covering our ears. The British people want peace, declared the politicians. I'll be voted out of office if I even talk about the threat of Germany, which is true. If you wanted to be a politician and maintain your position in Parliament, you couldn't talk about Germany, couldn't talk about Hitler. You had to be silent on the subject. The people of the country of Great Britain didn't want to hear about it. They wanted to stick their head in the sand and forget it all was happening. Winston Churchill says this, This was one of those awful periods which recur in our history when the noble British nation seems to fall from its highest state, loses all trace of sense or purpose, and appears to cower from the menace of foreign peril, frothing pious platitudes while foemen forge their arms. Sometimes it's not that good men can't do anything. It's that to do something would be mm, really hard and inconvenient for those good men. Christianity is about embracing the inconvenient. For us, many of us have chosen to embrace the comfort, and that has become a pattern in our life. And I just, if I could leave you with anything as we finish, just to allow the Spirit of God to freshly touch that dimension of your existence, would you be willing to allow inconvenience into your life? Would you be willing to allow the Spirit of God to take you where your natural man might wriggle and may be uncomfortable because that's the place where the world can be changed. God's blessings.